Please sit down. Let me uh, add my welcome very warmly to you this morning, especially if you're visiting us from out of town or you're here in town uh, regularly and this is the first time you've been with us. We're delighted you're here this morning. Wonderful to have Kieran and Sarah Kelleher, um, dear friends of the church family. Kieran used to be on staff here. They're now leading a church in Montrose. I know lots will want to catch up with them afterwards. Great to have you guys with us. Hope you have a great holiday. Love that you can't stay away from St. Andrews. That is great. Could you reach for a Bible, please, and turn to page 457, page 457, We're going to be looking at Psalm 20 that we've already had read and Psalm 21 together this morning. Uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer and then read Psalm 21 to us. Living and speaking, reigning God, we want to thank you for your presence with us. We want to thank you for your desire by your spirit and through your word to work in our lives and to help us to know you and to equip us to serve you and to make us more like your son and more confident in him. We pray that you would do all of those things in us this morning, uh, that we might be strengthened, we might be left rejoicing in your son and sent out in his name to serve him in our world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're back on page 457 in our Bibles, then let me read to us from Psalm 21. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Salah. For you met him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. I'm hoping you'll want to keep both of those uh, open in front of you. There's also an outline on the back of the notice sheet that will tell you where we're going to be going in the next few moments together. Um, The obvious question, though, is why two psalms? It's not just inflation. We're not just doing buy one, get one free. Actually, they're a a pair that fit very neatly together. The the headings on the sheet, I think, will show you some of how that works. Psalm 20 is a prayer for God to save his king. And then Psalm 21 is a celebration that God has saved his king. So it makes sense to take them together. And they are meant to make us sing. Uh, So I think we're meant to end up in where verse 13 is, singing, rejoicing 
in the mighty power of God. And specifically, we'll see, in the power that he displayed when he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, when he ascended to heaven, when he was enthroned at the right hand of God on high, far above every authority and dominion. I think it's true that most of us love a story with a a happy ending. Uh, I know one or two of you are utterly miserable and prefer it when everybody dies and there is just kind of general trauma everywhere, but most of us uh, prefer a movie, I don't know, in which the the stars walk off into the sunset holding hands at the end, or a, a detective story maybe that ends up with the guilty getting their comeuppance and a, a state of sort of peaceful innocence being restored to the world. We love a happy ending. And uh, one commentator says that we should think of these psalms as nothing less than the, the happy ending of history itself. Here is the, the most satisfying resolution possible to the greatest story that's ever been made. Ample reason we're gonna see for us to tune up our vocal cords this morning and join in this song of heavenly praise. Uh, One more quick word by way of introduction before we dive in, especially if you've been with us over the last little while. If not, don't worry about this too much. But we've said that these Psalms are part of a little collection, 15 to 24, that they're structured as a big sandwich with Psalm 19 in the middle. That makes uh, these two Psalms a deliberate match for Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, uh, David was rejoicing in the way that the Lord had rescued him and in the hope of his own resurrection. And one um, of the books lists 30 word links between Psalm 18 and these two Psalms together. And the suggestion is that David knew, even when he was singing about his own rescue in Psalm 18, that his rescue was just a picture of the bigger rescue, when the Lord Jesus would be raised from the dead and ascend on high. We're going to see more of that in the weeks to come. But for now, we'll dive into Psalm 20. And I'm I'm sorry, I couldn't resist the point heading, God save the king. It is though the summary of Psalm 20. Um, Some people think David wrote it when he was going into battle. He wanted the Israelites to be able to sing and to ask God to give him victory. That may be right. I've been persuaded that, that David isn't praying for himself though, but for a king who would come after him. You may know that God had promised David, that one day one of his descendants would reign forever over an eternal kingdom. And I'm persuaded that David is here asking God to keep that promise. So the picture I have is of David holding his baby son Solomon in his arms, uh, nursing him, and like lots of dads feeling moved to pray for his little one, knowing everything that God has promised. And now praying for this little one, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he grant you your heart's desires and so on. But what's even lovelier is that even if, and I don't think he did, David realized it at the time. Even if what he thought he was doing was praying for his son and heir, Solomon, without even realizing it, he was really praying for the Lord Jesus to come one day. For the true son of David. God's ultimate and forever king. And with the benefit of hindsight as we dive into the Psalms, we know that the Lord Jesus had to face many troubles in his life. Uh, We can think of the temptations he endured from the devil, 
Think of the, the opposition he bore from the Pharisees. Think of the, the trial of the cross and death itself. And verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 20, when taken together, they're a sort of combined prayer or wish or blessing written hundreds of years before that through everything that the Lord Jesus would endure, God would keep and save his son, our king, a prayer gloriously answered. Uh, as we dive into the prayer, you'll see that there are 10 requests in total. They're all in the singular praying for this king figure. The first line of verse 9, though, is a summary. O Lord, save the king. Because uh, David had experienced the help of God himself. And now he wants his son to get it too. And so he prays these things. May God answer your cries for help. May he protect you from the attacks of your enemy. May he send you help and give you support. May he remember your godly piety. May he grant you your heart's desires as you strive to do his will. And verse 5 is the, the result. And the, the picture is of an enormous crowd. Uh, I dare say after Celtic's treble yesterday, there'll be a scenes on the TV of them parading with their trophies through the streets if they're allowed to do that or... If Man City win this week and they do their treble, they'll parade through the streets. And here is uh, a victory march. Fans are, are shouting for joy. People are waving banners. Everyone is overflowing with exuberant and uninhibited joy. Except the scale of the delight in verse 5 is even greater. And the joy is even deeper with a Think of a celebration the like of which our world has never yet seen or witnessed. More joyful than all of the great carnivals of Notting Hill and Rio de Janeiro. More international than the Olympics. The, the ultimate answer to this prayer will feature a multitude that no one can number. People drawn from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. And we'll all be standing before the throne clothed in white robes and crying, salvation belongs to our Lord. And David was praying, Lord, that's what I long for. That's what you've promised to do. So please do what you have said. And as we picture David um, rocking Solomon to sleep in his arms, maybe singing Psalm 20 as a lullaby, and without even realizing that he's praying for Jesus, what is so striking is that even then, he seems to have zero doubt that God will hear and answer his prayers. So you've got the bold prayer in 1 to 5. Then there's deep confidence in 6 to 8. Let me just read from verse 6 again. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You'll see the confidence is born of what David knows and whom he trusts. And he knew the Bible. Uh, he knew the promise of someone who would crush the head of the serpent and overcome evil forever. 
He knew of the, the promise of the descendant of Abraham, through whom God would one day bless all the nations of the world. He knew that somehow those promises would be combined in the life and in the reign of his own son, who would reign forever. And then allied to that knowledge of Scripture, David had personally experienced the goodness and protection of the Lord upon him as God's king. And so now as he looks to the future, there's not a doubt in his mind. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer. And the point is that there is no doubt about God's purpose and there is no limit to his power. And so David trusted him. For us today, we know that God has chosen to install Jesus as his eternal king. It means that we can be confident that his reign is 100% secure forever. He's not just going to reign for a time and then die like every other king. He's not going to lose his throne in a revolution sometime or face some sort of heavenly reshuffle and be hounded out of office. God has made him king. And so nothing can stay his hand. And because David knows the purpose, the power of God, he trusts in the Lord to do what he said. And I take it that that is the wise thing to do. If God rules on high, and if God has the power he needs to achieve his own purposes, it would be a, a strange kind of folly to put your trust in anyone or anything else as the means by which God's purposes would be achieved. So verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Not us, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Uh, the world will trust in military might and financial power, earthly strategies, human wisdom to get things done. God had explicitly said back in Deuteronomy that no king of Israel should ever trust in horses and chariots. And so David is, is standing in a place of obedient faith here and saying, this is your plan, God. And so we trust you to achieve it. It's a great model for us of what true faith looks like uh, as the church. Do we want to make disciples of all nations? Do we want to raise our children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord? Do we want a, a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland? It will be tempting at times to trust in carefully crafted ministry strategies and human e effort and parenting silver bullets. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Back to the bigger picture though, verse 9 is this prayer in a nutshell, O Lord, save the king, may he answer us when we call, or as some prefer to translate it, and I think it's probably right, he will answer us when we call. And so no sooner has David prayed than he begins to celebrate, um, we can think of Psalm 21, if 20 is the prayer, 21 is a, a, a song of prophetic praise. It was fulfilled to some extent when David won battles, fulfilled to some extent in the life of Solomon, but much more fully. It rejoices in what for David was a future victory of the son of David, the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ, 
and it rejoices in his strength and power. So second major heading then, God has saved the king. And in verse one, it's just the king who's excited. It's a solo. You see, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire, have not withheld the request of his lips. But by the end, the, the rest of us are joining in the choir. So verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And the good news comes in the two parts that are on the sheet. The first reason we rejoice is because of the great blessing that God chooses to pour out on his king. Verse 3, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. You make him blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Those verses are a bit like a greatest hits of promises that God has made elsewhere in the Bible. David's anticipating a day when everything good that God has ever promised is going to be fulfilled in the life of his descendant. Um, I don't want to blind you with science, but just to, to rattle through them and give you a flavor for what's going on. There are explicit references in these few verses to Genesis 1 and 12 and 17, to Proverbs 3, to Psalms 2, 8, 15, 16, 18, and 23. But if you pull it all together, the reason that we exult greatly in the strength of the Lord is because God has worked in power in such a way that all of his promises have found their yes and amen, foreshadowed in Solomon, but supremely, truly, fully in the Lord Jesus, our King. One commentator puts it like this, the salvation that David depicts the king delighting in here is the realization of all biblical promise and expectation and hope. It is that big a deal that we're being encouraged to sing about. So here is, uh, at last, the second and final Adam. Here's the, the head of a new humanity, someone who's going to be wise, obedient, someone who will crush the head of evil forever. Here's the son of Abraham, a man of faith who will receive God's blessing, experience true joy in God's presence forevermore, and then pass that blessing on to others. Here's the son of David who will reign forever. And David was getting excited as we're saying, uh, prophetically looking into the future at the way that God would work in power. Uh, we can sing and read these verses with a deeper understanding and joy because we know the one in whom they all came to pass. Specifically in view here is his resurrection from the dead his ascension to reign at God's right hand. And let me try and uh, encourage us to join in with this song of praise with a couple of reflections. First, think with me about the, the faithful strength of God. Uh, I was 
thinking that you need two things if you're going to keep your promises. You need both power and love. Uh, We all know people who have the best of intentions but lack the strength to fulfill them. And we've probably had sad experience of people who have made big promises but then can't really be bothered to do what they've pledged. How wonderful to be reminded that our God is one who not only makes big promises about what he's going to do in the world, but that he also has the power and the love to keep them. Uh, Both power and love are mentioned explicitly here. We've seen that the Psalms bracketed by references to God's strength. But I love in the middle, verse 7, it is through the steadfast love of the Most High. It us what he's like. It reassures us that he will keep the rest of his promises as well. Uh, The big ones, Jesus reigning forever, his people forever safe in him. And then the more personal promises to us as well. So that when he promises the forgiveness of all of your sins, he means it. When he promises you the help of the Spirit so that you can live a new life as one of his people, he's not going to let you down or abandon you. When he promises the grace you need to endure your trials, he will be with you and his grace will be sufficient. When he promises you the hope of the new creation, it's not just a fairy tale, it's reality. There are times for all of us when we wonder whether these promises are true. Um, Doubts will hit different believers among us in different ways on different days. Be encouraged this morning that every promise of God is as secure as God himself is faithful and mighty. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever doubts you're living with, whatever uncertainties you feel about the future, whether those are personal or corporate for us as a church, we can continue to trust in the name of the Lord our God to achieve his good purposes. We can exult in his strength and power because he is mighty and faithful. Another reason to rejoice is that the secure blessing that is enjoyed by God's people because of the way that God has worked through Jesus. And there's a, I'm trying to explain what I mean by this. There's a line in, in Proverbs that says, when the wicked rule, the people groan. But in any nation or organization, it, it's a wonderful thing if our leaders are wise and good because then they do good. And they make wise decisions that make our lives better. And what's true in general is true of Jesus. And with each of the the titles of Jesus that we've, we've touched on this morning, they don't only tell us something wonderful about him, but they promise great blessing to anyone who is in him and who trusts in him. So we said that Jesus is the second, the final Adam, the firstborn of a a new humanity. And it's only because God promised, uh, fulfilled his promise to send that new and faithful Adam into the world that we can be a part of a new humanity and receive grace and life in him. 
Same is true of him being the son of Abraham. We said that God promised to bless the descendant of Abraham, and he did. But he also promised that through the son of Abraham, he would extend his blessing to all the nations of the world. And it's only because God sent the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, therefore that we can receive the blessing of life in him. And wonderful that Jesus is the son of David. On the, the grandest scale, we have confidence in him in a messed up world. He is the mighty and forever king. But then on a, a personal level too, we're reassured that his rule in our life is always good and wise and loving. Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And to, to color it in, there's a, a line in 1 Samuel when David says to a little band of his followers, stay with me, don't be afraid, because with me you shall be in safekeeping. And that is the, the kind of king over us that the Lord Jesus is. He says, stay with me, don't be afraid, because with me in your life, and in your death, you shall be in safekeeping. So I hope we can see that we have good reason to join in David's song of praise this morning. We rejoice because God has already blessed his king, Jesus, and because we are blessed in him. But then as we close, we're thankful too for what God will do through Jesus in the future. Finally then, the enemies of the king will be consumed, so we're to be confident. Let me read these tricky verses from verse eight. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. You'll make them appear as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You'll destroy their descendants from the earth, their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight and you will aim at their faces with your bows. The, the verbs have changed to the future. So everything in three to seven, what God has already done, God has already blessed his faithful King Jesus uh, with life, with joy in his resurrection, but he's not yet made Jesus' enemies a footstool of his feet. So we can think of ourselves as living somewhere between verse seven and verse eight. This stuff that we're reading about now will only happen when Christ comes again. Uh, whenever God arrives in the Bible or when God arrives, his, his coming is, is often signified by fire. And on this occasion, he arrives as judge. And in his wrath, he consumes all those who have stood on the side of evil and opposed him. Uh, and we're right, I think, to, to feel a little bit squeamish, maybe you are, when we, we come across this talk of fire and wrath and destruction. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, neither should we, but it, it helps us to remember that the, the happy ending that we all want for our world can only be achieved 
if God acts to destroy everything in our world that is detestable, um, the, the, the lies that rip families apart, the greed that exploits the vulnerable, the arrogance that oppresses the weak, fits of anger, needless violence, bitter jealousy, coercion in all its forms. No one wants that stuff in the world, I take it. And that's why I love those four words at the end of verse 11. They're realistic, aren't they? they there are so many in our world who plan evil. There are so many who set themselves in opposition to Jesus and his people. We're thinking about Northern India, thinking about North Korea, even here in Scotland. Much of the time, it looks as though those who are opposing the Lord Jesus will win. What a great comfort to anyone who mourns the, the cost and the pain of the evil that is in our world to hear they will not succeed. They will not succeed. And so when we, we read of a king as we are here who's gonna have the power to do something about the workers of evil, when we read of a king who's gonna return one day to swallow them all up in his mighty wrath, I take it that we're, we're right to rejoice in his power because really we're just rejoicing that heaven is real and that we will one day be free from evil if we've trusted in him, if he's dealt with the evil in our hearts and we've been restored to peace with him. Well, we started by saying that whether we're talking about films or literature, there's something very satisfying, isn't there? When the, the loose ends are tidied up, when the baddies get what they deserve, when, when everyone lives happily ever after. There is something in us that longs for that kind of world. And in these Psalms, David is celebrating. He's inviting us to cast our minds forward to the happy ending of the, the whole human story. Does our world ever feel out of control to you? Does it ever feel like evil has the upper hand? Do you ever wish that things were better? Do you ever long that someone with ultimate power might come and make all things good and new? The message of these Psalms 15 to 24 is that that is who God is, that is what he's doing. He's doing it through his son, Jesus. He has already exalted and blessed Jesus as the forever king of everyone. He's done that. And he will destroy evil forever when Christ returns. The power, the love of God has no limits. He's proven his faithfulness. We know he will do it. And so we're all invited to be a part of this perfect kingdom that we've been thinking about. It's a wonderful truth that anyone, that everyone who trusts in Jesus will share in this blessing forevermore and be a part of this perfect new creation. If you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I hope you'll want to do that this morning. I hope you'll want to lay hold of the benefits that are found in him as you acknowledge him as your king as you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And if that's something that you already know, then I hope you'll want to end where verse 13 is. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing 
and praise your power. Let's pray together. And our Father, we want to rejoice before you this morning that there is a happy ending to the human story. There is a, a happy ending to the history of our world when the Lord Jesus will be honored as the great King and Savior that he is. All glory, honor, and power will be to him. And when all evil is dealt with, and all who have trusted in your son get to share in his life and his blessing forevermore. We praise you for the day that is coming. Thank you for the foretaste of that day that we enjoy now as we trust in him, as we live among the community of your people in the church. Thank you for the hope and the confidence that we have even as we face our own weaknesses and doubts and as we live in a messed up world. We ask that we would be confident in the Lord Jesus. And we ask that we would rejoice and exalt uh, your power and your goodness and your love. Not only as we sing together now, but through all of our days, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.